0: Christopher, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on this episode. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about all things poetry and uh, i I was checking out your your bio and I'm just really excited to uh, talk to another fellow mexican American, uh, especially in the creative field so I'm really really excited to to see what's been going on with you did you did your family have ties to creativity uh was it was it a fairly open environment to creativity? It was an open environment to creativity, but To be frank,
1: no one in our family, at least in terms of my parents, Mm. um, were really creative types. I Mm. mean, uh, the farthest it went is that my father knew how to play the guitar, but he didn't want to be a musician. Mm. I think at one point he wanted to be a soccer player instead. In terms of creativity, they were open to the idea of creativity, which is to say that just out of nowhere, their children wanted to be creative. My brother (laughs) wanted to be a musician. I want to be a writer and an actor. And I think my younger sister also had an interest in music. Um, Mm. So there's four of us, by the way, Uh, two older brothers, including myself and two younger sisters. And yeah, for some reason the arts really exploded within our generation, as opposed to my parents. Mm. My parents weren't really creative
0: types. Mm. What part of Mexico are your parents from? Uh, Del DF. DF. Oh, okay. I was going to say if, uh, if we were neighbors, my family's from Jalisco. Have you been back there? Do you, do you have ties to, to Mexico down there? I used to go there every summer uh, when mm. I was a kid.
1: Yeah. But unfortunately, as soon as I started college, I had to start um, working to pay off my loans. I would either had summer jobs or summer mm. classes. And I actually haven't been back to uh, Mexico for about 12 years now. Oh, man. And yeah. that really saddens me, actually, because... Um I got to know my grandparents as a child and they're all actually gone now. Mm-hmm. Um I wasn't able to say goodbye to them because I always had to keep working or I had to keep studying yeah. and you know oh. I love something that r- really bugs me is when people
0: make traveling a personality trait. That's not a personality trait. That's a class indicator. I mean it, yeah and it, and it's difficult you know for for some of us who um, we don't have the luxury to be able to see our loved ones. I mean, I, I haven't been to Mexico in about five years and, uh, you know, haven't seen my dad in a while. He's actually retired in Mexico. And so that's one of those things where you feel like um, there are certainly different experiences being lived by by different uh, classes. and um, And travel is one of those things that really <laughs> becomes an emotional subject for me. But in terms of your writing, getting started with that. How did that come about for you when you were younger? When did that start for you?
1: It came about rather organically. And by that I mean that I discovered it and it discovered me. Because <laughs> um for for better or worse, I was not the best reader as a kid. Like I would read comics and manga, but in terms of like novels, like actual text, um, I would only read it if it was form of the dialogue bubble in one of those comics. <laughs> So I was actually a really bad reader as a kid. I thought I was going to go into video game design, actually. Mm. Then I suddenly started, um, I, something clicked in me during my junior year of high school, and I read some, um, some novels that really struck me, specifically in a Spanish literature class, mm. where I got to read books by Latin American greats, such as Marquez, such as Isabel Allende, such as Julio Cortazar and Juan Rufo, and it just really changed in my life. It started to really give me a view of like what, um, novels can do, um, and specifically what stories can do. So I did that, but then the reason why I started writing poetry was because of none other than Pablo Neruda, mm. uh, who I also read in that class. And I was just a very sad teenage romantic. And the fact that he wrote such very sad teenage romantic poems really, really struck with me. Mm. So I was a very terrible Pablo Neruda imitator for a while (laughs) until I started to discover more contemporary poets. Mm. Um, But in terms of poetry specifically, I did not actually write much poetry until I went to my MFA in writing um at the university of san francisco Mm. and i only took one poetry class there which i was shocked i was going to do because (laughs) you know you're thinking to yourself i'm a novelist uh, or i'm a short story writer i'm not i'm not a poet like i don't know how to do poetry Mm. but then that got me thinking you know what that's not the point of a class you know Mm -hmm. you don't go into a calculus class thinking you're already a calculus genius (laughs) you go in there to learn calculus right so in the same way I went in there to learn about poetry and my God, did it change my
0: perspective on poetry. What, what happened in the class and specifically what are the things that, that were sort of eureka moments for you at that time?
1: Well, it was mostly reading a lot of, um, poetic theory. The, the, the name of the class was called Poetics and it was, um, it was through my brilliant instructor, uh, Bryn Saito. Um, so Lots of I have to give her thanks for making the class so um so amazing and so life changing, um but it was a bunch of theory um on, on poetry like one of our final assignments was to um study like some sort of poetic uh, theory and present it to the class and for me I did spoken word poetry, um and and political poetry, which was an okay presentation in hindsight. <laughs> But, you know, it was just, that's kind of the kind of stuff we would talk about. It's be about, like, the purpose of poetry. And not only that, but it was introducing me to contemporary poets, hmm. such as, uh, such as Soma Sarif and Denise Smith and Douglas Manuel. And, you know, it was just a lot of people who, you know, I think when people say that nobody reads poetry anymore, I mm. think they're mostly referring to the old white dead men, <laughs> um you know nobody people read Shakespeare in classes, but nobody really reads words, words for fun. They could, mm-hmm. yeah, but I have seen poetry like experience the Renaissance, particularly during the Trump era because of politics, you mm. know, protest poetry, poetry by lgbtq community, poetry by poets of color, you know mm-hmm. it. I mean, we still have, obviously, white poets who get published the most. They'll get me started on that. <laughs> um, but but there was this renaissance in poetry because of what was going on in the country. Mm. Um, and not only that, but I also suspect that the whole nobody reads poetry anymore is an American attitude. Oh, interesting. Because there are a lot of countries where poets are jailed, you know, mm-hmm. for speaking out against their governments. So. But here we just ignore them uh, more than anything, just say, yeah. "Oh, no one's going to read them. It doesn't matter. Yeah. you know,
0: do you think it's it's because, um I, at least from my perspective, do you think poetry has moved online mostly, like a majority of of that communication is happening online, or do you think there is still a foundation for poetry in in the offline world?
1: Oh, yeah, totally, totally for the offline world, but also for the online world. I mean, I know there's a term insta poetry, which you know people have extremely mixed feelings of mm-hmm. myself included but um in terms of the renaissance of poetry that I was talking about it also included a lot of people who are young a lot of the youth who mm-hmm. start to read poetry because they felt empowered to write poetry and they felt empowered to write poetry because of social media because they could post it there um get clicks and views and reads and get um feedback for it mm-hmm. whereas you know, they could try for years and years to submit it to literary journals and be rejected every time. Um, because guess who's also in charge of those literary journals?
0: (laughs) So, right. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, a community of, of gatekeeping. Would you say is, is that something that is still keeping folks outside of that industry or do we just have to take it upon ourselves to create our own avenues? Do you think that's more possible now than getting uh, getting these larger publication entities to to start looking for the outsiders?
1: Um, in terms of the gatekeeping, I think the gatekeeping is always going to exist for better or worse, um, but in terms of the making things through our own avenues, yeah, that's definitely possible now. There's self-publishing, there's a lot of people I know have published chapbooks on mm-hmm. their own, um, and then sell them independently, which is pretty cool. Um, but I'm also seeing more and more literary journals, like you say, popping up online. Mm-hmm. And these are mostly by people who want to do it for the love of labor. They can't pay you, but they give you much more exposure because they really want to champion your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of so to go back to the online thing, I have also noticed that it's not just poetry that's moving online, it's a community. Like, hmm. like, because writing is such a lonely endeavor, I think we naturally want to reach out to people who understand writers and nobody understands writers better than writers. <laughs> and nobody understands poets better than poets. You can talk about these kind of things with a musician. I know I've tried with my brother,
0: but he just won't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, on your bio, it said, um, writer, bookseller, former fiction editor. I kind of wanted to ask you about fiction editing. What does that entail and where where did that take place?
1: That was that was probably one of the funnest things I had ever done as a side project, mm-hmm. um, which I wish it could have been my main project. But as far as I can tell, the the magazine that I was working for called, called Watermelon Mag mm-hmm. uh, has taken a hiatus that I don't think it's going to recover from. Oh. But that's besides the point. Um, at first I started there as a contributor, I contributed my own uh, personal essays and nonfiction to it. And then one day they, um, they opened up positions for, uh, editors. Mm. Ironically enough, I applied for the poetry editor, (laughs) but, um, I was given the fiction editor position, I guess, because I'm better at fiction. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but in terms of what I did there, Basically, people would submit. I would read the submissions, and I would get to choose which ones went into the into the magazine and which ones did not. Mm. Um, quite a now, task. of course, if I <laughs> it was really quite a task because I started to see it from the other way around. You know, I saw that oh, I can't just publish everyone because not everyone's going to be a good fit. Mm. Um, and that's not because their work is terrible. It's just that this isn't really what we're looking for. You know, right. we like to think of our. I know that poets and writers like to think that their work can belong anywhere, but having been in the shoes of an editor and having been contributors and staff writers for other smaller publications, I just know that's not how it works. Um, Basically, basically it needs to find a home, which it will, but it needs to find a right home. And Now, does that mean I rejected a lot of people? I think I was one of the most lenient (laughs) editors ever because I tended to read something, and I wouldn't just reject it or or um, accept it outright. I would try to see if it had any sort of potential in terms of like, hey, if I can work with you on this, I think we can get it published or get it ready to have it published. And you know, some writers would say yes, some writers would say no. Um, it's good enough as it is, and then that's when I would make the final decision. So
0: moving forward, having gone through that experience, what what kind of things can you take from that and apply it to your own writing?
1: Um, it's helped a lot uh, because that was one of the things that I think that was really tough for me when I was younger in terms of just knowing how the submission process worked, just knowing how, the, uh, how much rejection was just a part of the life yeah. of a writer. <laughs> and again, it's just, well, it informed me a lot because I was already told through my MFA that sometimes things aren't going to work out with certain magazines because of so-and-so. Like, for example, um, you could submit to one magazine that uh, a poem about unicorns, but the problem is that they had already gotten a poem about unicorns and they didn't want to. So they're either going to tell you, hey, we can't accept this right now, sorry, or they're going to tell you, hey, we want to accept this, but we got to wait for another issue. It so forth. So that way you don't really beat yourself up anymore in terms mm. of like, no, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be able to do this. I should just give up and work in an office <laughs> nine to five every day. But it's much more of a, okay, that one didn't work out On to the next one.
0: You know how after looking at so many submissions or so much of one thing that you, you might start to see things that make the writing effective. Do you feel like you you've started to recognize those those things within the submissions?
1: There's definitely like good writing in terms of like, you know, you get the grammar right or you get the you get the structure right, you get all of it right. But what I was really looking for in um in a lot of the stories that were submitted was emotional impact. Mm-hmm. Like is this going to be not necessarily a story that changes not The way I, um, not the way I see things, not the way I, not the way I think, but simply the way I feel like, did, did you really manage to get me connected to these characters or to the story? Did you really make me care about what was happening? Not necessarily root for it because if it's a story on murder, I don't want to root for it, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but did you really have me caring like what's happening here?
0: Right. Do you think that um, at at this point in time in your your creative pursuits, are you leaning more towards poetry or fiction? Or is it just a balancing act at this point?
1: It really is a balancing act. Um, I'm not leaning more towards one or the other because I'm also in Los Angeles and thus doing screenwriting. Mm. Um, So honestly, like, yeah, I'm a a man of all trades for better or worse, which (laughs) can sometimes be for the worse because then... You're sitting at the computer, be like, which one am I working on today? <laughs> I have this one, or that one, or that one, or that one.
0: Are Are there some uh, screenwriting projects that you're excited about right now, or or things that you're? Oh yeah, you're, totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. I'm actually currently applying for a TV uh, uh, fellowship, mm. but the NHMC um, has to do with uh, script writing. I highly recommend anybody who's a uh latin a identified a screenwriter to apply to it um it's uh i almost got in the last time i applied which was in 2019
2: Hmm.
1: and i've been working on a screenplay with a friend of mine and having edited so much i'm going to use that as a writing sample and
0: you know very cool i
1: think i might have a shot so
0: no that's that's amazing amazing i i wish you the best on that one and uh if you like, we'll we'll let folks know in the uh, episode description too, if anyone's interested in that. But what kind of genre do you do you like to focus on when you're writing screenplays? or is that kind of an open canvas too?
1: It's a bit of an open canvas, but lately, it's been a lot of slice of life um stories, oh. so like realistic stories, not necessarily not necessarily drama, not necessarily um, um romance or anything like that. But it really um, just a slice of life stories about real life, mm-hmm. uh, particularly or better or worse, my own experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I imagine that growing up in California, uh, it's just, it seems like such a, a foreign world to me. I'm actually uh, a Mexican American who was raised in Wyoming, the state of Wyoming, of all places. And so oh. Oh. I'm very intrigued by by what the, the Mexican-American experience has been in other parts of the country, because it's so specific, right? Uh, just like with anything else. But mm-hmm. um, you mentioned in your bio that you are from Watsonville. Um, can you yeah. tell me about... Representing the <laughs> Can you tell me about what life was like there growing up? It was very quiet. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: we are a small agricultural community that is dominated mostly by Latine and Philippinex people. Mm. Um, There's a big history behind that. Actually, now that I realize it's actually a lot of um, folks of color, because Mm. there was also a huge uh, moment in history where um, regarding the Japanese Americans, but that's a a very long history on that (laughs) town that we can definitely get into later. Mm. Um, In terms of how it was when I grew up there, it was a very quiet town. We are segregated, um, low income community. Apart from, um, we are a part of Santa Cruz County, but we're the mostly PLC dominated um, part of Santa Cruz County hmm. because the, our neighbors, Aptos and Santa Cruz, the city, are incredibly white in and affluent. I see. Um, yeah, so it's a very segregated community there. Um,
0: yeah, you, so. Were- Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was just going to, oh, the last thing I was going to say is that um, because it's very segregated, there wasn't really many career opportunities there. Mm. Um, Like we're, Santa Cruz is right below Silicon Valley. So people can commute from there to here, which has caused problems Mm, (laughs) with gentrification. Um, Yeah. But in terms of like Watsonville itself, it's mostly agricultural and educational.
0: how old were you when you started to realize that disparity? Uh, when you when you were a kid,
1: you know it took me a while. Um, I would visit Santa Cruz from time to time with my family, and I would wonder to myself, why doesn't Watsonville have any of this? And uh. you know, I'm really ashamed to say it, but I was thinking as at a very young age, like why doesn't have the cleaner streets or the nicer businesses or stuff like that. And that's a very shameful way of thinking because, um, you know, it's not Watsonville's fault Mm -hmm. that it's low income. Um, It's a segregation of economics and income inequality. So, And I didn't realize that until I was much older in college. Um, In high school, it just seemed very normal. It's like, oh, yeah, all the Mexicans here in Watsonville all the white people over there in Santa Cruz. Mm. Um, so, so it was an
0: accepted thing where you said, okay, this is, this is my life. This is how we live. And and let's not think too much of it then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. When did you feel that sort of make its way into your writing? Um, because I, I imagine that some of the poetry or, or maybe work that you started doing became political, as you mentioned. Um, did, did it have a strain of that in, in the writing or when did that happen?
1: You know, it was also ironically late in the game <laughs> when I started to think about, um, uh, particularly uh, race and ethnicity in my writing, mm. because, because yes, I was inspired by the um, by the Latin American writers in that high school uh, Spanish literature class. However, uh, when I was in college, I think around my third year, um, I took a class on. Specifically on one writer of all writers, it was Philip Roth, oh, uh, the Jewish American writer, who met have people have many many opinions on, but that's not the point of this story. <laughs> um, in this story, I took a class devoted to his writing, and I saw how he wrote so much about his Jewish American identity mm. and ethnicity. And then I looked over all of my writing and plot twist they were all white characters. Oh, really? Like, every single story I had written at that point included white men, white women. It was all white characters with white names and white problems. And I thought to myself, why
0: That is. is so, it like this?
1: Yeah, wow. It was actually kind of scary when I found out and I realized it's because I'd never actually seen myself represented in my in those stories. And I thought that, you know, it's it's a bit of a brainwashing, whitewashing sort of thing that great literature is one of the white greats. You know, it's wow. like. Wow.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I empathize with that so much I can't even begin to describe it. As I mentioned, growing up in a in a primarily white community of thirteen thousand people, a majority of them Latter Day Saints. Um, I definitely can't imagine actually just just realizing why am I writing this? Why am I denying mm-hmm. my own experience over, over things that maybe I, I've never really experienced? But it's almost like in the back of our mind, there's something telling us this is the approved way of doing something, right? This is the approved way. That's exactly way. how it is. Yeah. So what did you have to do to break out of that, to to let go of that?
1: Well, it wasn't easy. That was for damn sure. Um I started to think more and more about my experiences, ironically, thanks to that class, who people ironically tend to link um, Philip Roth as a white writer. But again, that's besides the point mm-hmm. of this story. <laughs> but the point is that I started to write more and more about um, uh, Mexican-American characters, particularly based on my experiences. But then I started to have this sort of like imposter syndrome moments where I thinking to myself, who's going to publish this? Who's actually going to produce this? Who, if it's a lot of white gatekeeping, who's actually going to want to put this out for me or bring it to life for me
0: or, yeah. And that's the dilemma, right? Because then you you might start wanting to make concessions about something to say, well, you know, maybe if we have a percentage of brown people in the story, then it might be a little bit more acceptable, you know, or I might be able to get in, you know, and, and get it under the radar. Um, do you ever feel like you're you automatically start making those concessions in your writing?
1: Oh yeah, oh mm-hmm. yeah, a hundred percent. Especially because I I really like how you mentioned about the um, Mexican exper- American experience being so different in other parts of the country because that's yeah. exactly how it is everywhere. It's nuanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, in um, in Watsonville, the Mexican American experience was mostly um, farm working. Mm. A lot of, I grew up knowing a lot of people who worked in the fields and I, even I worked in the Mm fields from time to time. So, um, whereas in other places, you know, apparently a lot of American media Mm. tends to think we're drug traffickers, Um, a lot of us tend to view us as janitors, custodians, um, you know, just the low meager jobs Mm -hmm. that people obviously don't want to work. And let's say nobody wants to work anymore. Yeah
0: i mean i got I got a question for you because this this reminds me of something that I've been thinking about in my own writing. I come from a lower to working class family. My dad was a construction worker laborer musician you know jack of all trades kind of thing. My mom has always been she was a hairdresser and uh a housekeeper you know she she that's just what she did, who she was and a lot of the people in my life have been in those positions forever and ever so this is the mm-hmm. dilemma. I, I always think I want to write about my experiences. I want to write about my family or the people that, that I know, not so much as archetypes, but just as human beings, right? And the struggles that they've gone through in a way to honor them. But at the same time, there's this larger conversation that's saying you have to have people of color who are heroes, who are in positions of power, who are, you know, leading the way, Right. So that we can teach newer generations that, that it's possible to, to achieve something other than, you know, what, what we've seen before. So how do we reconcile that? What, what's the, the, the answer here? Because I think a lot of us do come from that background where, you know, there, there is sort of a working class kind of, um, kind of history that we want to represent, but is that wrong? and should we create these these characters that are larger than life and in these these um people of color who are who can be heroes
1: yeah i mean you're right that there's a lot of um um a lot of us do come from those sort of backgrounds myself included my mom ran a daycare at home mm-hmm. and my dad is a social worker mm-hmm. um but of course they had to work their way up even to those positions right but um I, Again, it goes back to the whole thing being nuanced because there's a reason why a lot of positions start out that way, is because of poverty, immigration, and white supremacy. Um, you know, those are there are circumstances that forces them into those situations in which they work those meager jobs, so then that their children, basically, they walk so their children can run. You right. know, yeah. Um, so then. They expect um, their children to rise above the ranks, get the grades, go to college, and, you know, get the good jobs and be in those positions of power. Mm -hmm. And, yes, that's something we do want to see. But there's also a lot of gatekeeping even within those positions of power. You just saw how um, for the confirmation of our new Supreme Court justice. Uh, A bit infuriating if you ask me. Yeah. Which Uh. which, congrats congrats to her for being… I mean, she was so an absolute boss. But you did see how, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> totally, totally, hundred percent. She was, she was sincerely overqualified, given every other person who has been there right. this whole time, right. including three of Trump's Supreme Court justices. So she was much, much over, much more qualified than any of those justices combined.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Regardless, you saw how the Senate just walked out, right? So. You have people in positions of power who look like us and that people just won't accept.
0: So do you think that we can use our, our art, our stories, our projects to to bring a, a different kind of awareness about who we are? Should that be the priority, you know, uh, for us as storytellers to, or is it a responsibility to paint a picture of, of who we are um, for them to to see a different side of us? Or is that even something we should be thinking about?
1: So that is a very tough conversation to have specifically Mm -hmm. because there are people who do believe that it's the, it's the, um, the poet's, you know, um, responsibility to bring awareness to the world. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think it's their responsibility, but I think it is in their power Mm -hmm. to do that Yeah, because um, so, and this, uh, be just uh, my personal theory on on art in particular, is that we te- we should write for um, to express ourselves, and that in turn could bring awareness to the stories that we're telling. Mm. And just to go into a little bit of a caveat, um, I used to volunteer as a screenwriter for a non screenwriting instructor at a nonprofit called the Digital Nest, also located in Watsonville. Um, oh. and I was volunteer as a screenwriter instructor for um for the youth there for high school and college students. Oh cool. And yeah it was really cool. And one of the things I would always tell them is that look so they always tell you how hard it is to be an artist, but they never tell you how hard it is not to be an artist. You know? <laughs> like imagine um Going to your nine to five, first of all, you wake up in the morning, you get up very early because you have to commute to your work on time or at least wake up on time for your computer now that we're doing things remotely. Um, and you eat breakfast, you get up, you go to work. Even if you enjoy your work, you're still there for eight hours straight mm-hmm. all day. You go home, you have to make some food, have dinner, and then you have to go to bed so that you get to work on time the next day. So basically rinse and repeat. (laughs) Um, So I sincerely asked every student that was there, every time I mentioned this, where is your outlet? You know, how Mm -hmm. do you let people know exactly what you're feeling, how you're feeling and what you want to feel? You know, how do you let it all out um, in a healthy manner? So in terms of like, the purpose of purpose of poetry purpose of art that's my personal theory for it which in turn could could bring about change because you know we have mm-hmm. our own stories to tell and each story is different right. um, and sometimes when we tell those stories and people hear them you get different reactions but you could also get a collective reaction which is that hey this person has really suffered that's really wrong so and i think that and I think that is, um, is very powerful, you know, you mm-hmm. weren't trying to change the world, but you changed the world anyway.
0: Mm. Well, that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, first of all, I think it's amazing that you did the screenwriting in, instructor, uh, volunteer work. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty great that you brought that to your community. Do you have any moments during that time that really changed your perspective on something or that taught you something? During your time as a as a volunteer screenwriting instructor,
1: yeah, though um I mean, for the better or worse, I just kept hearing the question, do I have to move to l a mm. and and for better or worse, the sh- my short answer eventually definitively became maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for that, I mean, yeah, I mean. It first became, it was first a no. I was like, no, you can write wherever you want. But then it started to quickly shift into a yes, because, I mean, look where I am right now. Yeah, I am in Los Angeles myself trying to pursue a writing career. And, of course, I'm writing in all trades. But when it comes to screenwriting, I think you really do have to be in a place that will be looking to produce your scripts. Um, But now it becomes a Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> simply because <laughs> because you don't you could definitely build things in your community to um to create uh, art there like even in Watsonville there's the the Watsonville Film Festival now that really does bring oh, really? a lot of films from local filmmakers in there yeah i think they i don't know what the name, what number of the year they just celebrated but it was a big anniversary And a few of my friends actually submitted their films to it and got recognized, which was really, really cool. But that wouldn't have happened here before, Hmm. you know, Um, without, that wouldn't have happened without a collective sense of community to bring change and art to the people around you, you know, to your city, to your small town. Um, That said, it can only go so far because Los Angeles is for better or worse the capital of a lot of art and filmmaking. So that's why I said maybe. Because yeah. it really depends on how far you want to go. Because as much as I love Watsonville, and I really, really do love Watsonville, one of the reasons I moved out of there is because the resources were so low.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And honestly, it was uh I just I just can't live a quiet life anymore. Um, I see. I tried moving back there just recently, but then I moved back to Los Angeles because I just realized that I'm I'm more of a big city person now. <laughs> Is that right? Um, I have. Yeah, I've grown out of that world for better or worse. So mm-hmm.
0: Very interesting. So given that, uh, that you are living in the city there and, and pursuing these things, which I applaud you for, I'm curious about how your schedule pans out with the obviously commutes and in work and things that you got to do how does writing take place for you when and how do you make time for that if i may
1: every day i have off from work <laughs> um and for better or worse i have no choice mm-hmm. uh, now i can definitely take a break like say like oh um today i don't want to write i want to i'm just going to read or go on a hike or hang out with friends so i could definitely make time for other things but i do realize that my time with my writing is limited because I do work a uh, 40-hour work week.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I do need to have a balancing act there as well. And I kind of need those 40 hours because uh, I'm a bookseller and bookselling does not pay you that much. Mm. <laughs> so, I see. Um, yeah. So I am, um, I am being cautious about like not skipping any days of work and making sure that I have enough money for the rent. Uh-huh. For groceries and all that stuff, yeah. But this is still what I want to pursue. I do. I did move back to Los Angeles to finish what I started. Mm. And if I can make a declaration here, I will finish what I started. I will That's get right. those scripts done. I
0: will get those books out. All like the a, things. Like a boss. Like a boss. So. Like a boss. <laughs> in in terms of your book selling, um, what does that entail for you? Uh, what's uh, where where are you doing that at?
1: Um I work at a uh, Barnes and Noble over in Studio City. Ah nice. Um which yeah, which is a lot of fun. Uh actually I I really like the job. Um mm. I really do like the job because I'm not selling cars, I'm selling books, I'm really passionate <laughs> about books. <bugs. laughs> right. And, right. You know, I wanted to be a teacher at one point, um and and have like, you know, intellectual conversations, enlightening moments with students but it's actually at the bookstore where I meet people who want to read, who are looking for books that I have the conversations I thought I was going to have as a teacher instead of, but instead as a teacher, I started to say, to get a lot of students who just didn't want to learn. And that's fine, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's how the American education system works. It disappoints you. (laughs) Um, But in terms of, in terms of these, uh, in terms of this job, is um, yeah, I really like it a lot. Um, I will say that at the end of the day, though, it is still retail. Like mm-hmm. it is still a lot of customer service. Yeah. But yeah. it really is a different sort of customer service. You know, again, I'm not selling cars and I'm not bringing you. Yeah.
0: Um, well, there there I'm seem to a, be. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say I'm not working food service, or That's anything right. like and that. I'm working that...
0: with. That's a tough gig, you know, uh, working food service, but at least you're in a place where you have your inspiration there. You're surrounded by inspiration and uh, maybe you're able to pick up on some stories there too, you know, with uh, the interesting people that you meet. Uh, is that, is that a source of inspiration for you? Just kind of listening and, and oh, yeah. being around people?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Actually more than that, um, I get to meet other people who want to do the same thing that I do, mm-hmm. which is write yeah. and act and you know yeah. all the creative things um which is inspiring i actually um if anybody ever comes to visit i actually set up a table with a lot of writing books and, you know people have opinion on the writing books it's like oh why do you need a book to write oh well why do you need a book to act or right. a book to write music but that's besides the point the point is that i set up that table so i can get so I to help other writers find ways to improve their writing and every mm-hmm. time somebody buys something off that table I get into a conversation with them and sometimes we even exchange contact info and that's how I meet a lot of really really cool ambitious people Mm -hmm. and that did not happen to me in Watsonville I actually (laughs) grew up I'm not joking like I grew up without writers in my life you know Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends uh, in the past wanted to be musicians Mm -hmm. and I just identify with that. Um, right. i try I tried to identify with that. I tried to be a musician myself at one point, but then it just became clear and clearer that, no, I'm a writer and yeah. I need to meet other writers. And that's what I'm doing here. so
0: no, that's a it sounds like an amazing place to be. Um, but i I really appreciate that because you understand that there's a need for community. Uh, there's a need to uh, to reach out and and not be isolated right? Because I think a lot of us tend to go inward and maybe too inward to the Mm -hmm. point where we forget how to be around people who will set the flame alight again in, in some respects. But do you remember having a mentor in, in your life after you left Watsonville or somebody who inspired you to pursue the craft even further?
1: Mentor is a really tough word for me. Um, Also because I've had teachers, but I don't think I've had a mentor who I constantly go to for advice. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I've had really, really good teachers uh, regardless. Um, There was the creative writing um, uh, supervisor back in my hometown. His name was James Lucas. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there was my MFA thesis advisor who I love to death. Her name was Beth Wynn back at the... MFA in San Francisco Hmm. um so I've had teachers throughout my life but in terms of a mentor that uh that has um that I go to constantly I don't really have that I feel like I had to figure a lot of things out on my own for better or worse um so but hey look out look where it's me yeah
0: and I, I also think it's wonderful, too, because you have been able to become a mentor to so many people now as uh, somebody who, who does work in that setting, you know, like having those conversations and guiding people about books, but also as a screenwriting instructor. I mean, bringing that skill set to your community, I can't imagine the gratification of being able to share what you have acquired, you have gone to find and struggle to get and bring it back to your people, right? Bring it back to the community where you started. So I I really applaud you for that because you in turn have become a mentor in in spite of this the struggles and things like that. I wanted to ask you one more question because I want to be respectful of your time. I ask everybody this why do you think we need the arts now more than ever? Why is it essential that we pursue this in our communities and in our society at large? Mm,
1: I think that's the wrong question to ask. (laughs) I, I love it. I love it. Correct me if I'm explain. wrong. <laughs> no, no, it, it's not. It's, the thing is that we've heard that a lot very, very recently. Why do we need the arts now more than ever? And I think that is personally the wrong, question, wrong way to phrase it because we've always needed the arts, you know? Um, we don't need the arts now more than ever. We're just expected to do more art now more than ever. Um, okay. Which is this, and I heard that a lot during the Trump administration. Is that oh, we need to arts more than ever? No, we've always needed it. You just weren't really paying attention. Mm. Um, you know, we needed it during the Bush administration. We needed it during the deportations of Obama, and we needed it during the fascism of Trump, and now the new do nothingness of Biden. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> in, at the risk of being canceled, um, I think the better way to raise that question is, why do you? Need the arts more than ever, not we, because again, we could have different reasons for different forms of art. You know, some people want to be entertained, some people want to be moved, some people want to uh, protest, other people want to um, just express themselves. But why do you personally need the art? Mm. And why do you personally believe that you need it now more than ever? Why did you think you never
0: needed it before? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I appreciate that because you're right. It is uh, it is not a catch-all question sometimes, if not all the time. So, um, is there anything else that you'd like to add, Christopher, on uh, on craft thoughts on poetry?
1: That is also a very tough question because I feel like I have to end on a very um, on a very good note. <laughs> and no, but I do feel like we've talked about a lot of the things that we want to talk about. I guess to give people a pet talk um, or at least the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, listen,
0: this is my tragic downfall is I love pep talks. And I think that, um, I, I often pursue them at the risk of being reductive and, uh, (laughs) you you know, because I, I do think that, um, a lot of us are are dealing with a lot in terms of going to work and, and pursuing the craft, even though, um, there are barriers, right. Constant barriers. So what do you, do you ever give yourself pep talks? in a way do you believe in them
1: uh yeah i do give myself pep talks um what would that look like do you think uh (laughs) this is going to be very very (laughs) embarrassing it's okay it's okay okay but basically i let me put it this way i misinterpreted the term main character syndrome i don't know if you've ever heard of that term apparently Uh, it originated on social media where Apparently, it means that you think the whole world revolves around you, you know, you basically you're Mm -hmm. like a selfish and narcissistic to the point that you believe yourself to be the main character. I, however, in my anime obsessed mind, (laughs) believe that it was more like pumping yourself up like the main character, you know, you're going to overcome Mm -hmm. this, you know, you're going to defeat the villain. It was not that, but I just tend to do that anyway, you know. Um, I don't think to myself like, oh, what would Goku or Naruto do? No, I'm more like, I just keep telling myself like, I'm going to conquer this. You know, I'm not going to let it conquer me. Um, that's, it's a very simplistic sort of pep talk, but it
0: mm-hmm. seems to work every time. Wonderful. Well, okay, one one last thing because I know I know we are uh, we're <laughs> running out of time here. Um do you have something some some books or poetry that you'd like to recommend that uh, that really blew you away the first time you uh, you read them? If there's maybe a handful that you really really enjoy and have made a difference in your life.
1: Oh man. Um I mean the book that changed my life was Don Quixote by uh, Cervantes mm. that was one of the books that we re- or at least one of the books that we read from in, um, in the Spanish literature class. Obviously, I did not read, we did not read the whole thing in that class for high schoolers if they did, but I read it on my own time and yeah, it just, that one was one of the big ones that blew me away, uh, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, a lot of the works by Roberto Bolano. Uh, mm-hmm. he is currently my go-to author my go-to writer, okay. which is to say, like, if I ever need inspiration, if I ever need to be reminded why I want to write, I go to Bolaño. Um, <laughs> there's also The um, The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, which is really, really cool. Hmm. Um, in terms of poetry, uh, the poems by Soma Sharif are incredible. Uh, I just finished the book *Time as a Mother* by Ocean Vuong, which just came out last Tuesday, which was fantastic. Um, mm. And I think there's just too much, too much to go through uh, <laughs> in terms
0: of like what I'd want to recommend. You could just check out my Goodreads if you want. There we go. I'll make sure to link it in the uh, in the podcast description as well as all the stuff on your link tree. Um, and again, Christopher, thank you so much for your time for your insights and for the work that you do. And I'm really looking forward to get to see what you're up to next. And uh, of course this will be coming out here in in the coming weeks, so I'll make sure that you get get the links for that as well. So again, thank you for all that you do. And uh, I hope I get to talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, certainly, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.